for joining us today. My name is Chell Miller. I work in the Government Law Center as the events coordinator. I'm going to share just a few housekeeping tips before I pass the baton to the Honorable Leslie Stein, who will welcome everyone. Very quickly, um, live transcript is enabled for this program. So you can click live transcript at the bottom of your screen to either view captions while we're speaking or open a transcript in your window. Um, if you have questions for our guest speakers during the program, please click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom window where you can then type in your question. The chat will be disabled um, so that the hosts and panelists can communicate with each other and so I can provide information for you throughout the program. If you have any questions or concerns and or if you encounter any tech issues, let us know in the Q&A or you can contact me by email. My email is on the screen. I will also add it to the chat. We have sent CLE for forms and program materials to you by email. There will be one CLE code shared during the program. If you have questions about CLE credits, please contact Lisa Rybage. I will add her email address into the chat and it's also visible on your screen right now. And I am happy to pass the baton on to Judge Stein. Thank you, Chill. And good afternoon, everyone. I'm Leslie Stein, Director of the Government Law Center at Albany Law School. I'd like to welcome you to the third program of the 2023 Warren M. Anderson series. I also want to thank our series sponsors, Greenberg Traurig and family members George, Charles, and Joan Weissman in memory of Sharon P. O'Connor, Albany Law School class of 1979, as well as today's program sponsors, Hinman Straub and Lippis Mathias. The mission of the Government Law Center is to help state and local governments better serve their communities through nonpartisan legal research and analysis by bringing together a diverse and inclusive group of lawyers, students, scholars, and community partners. We prepare students for careers as skilled and leading attorneys in public service, advance Albany Law School's unique connection to the government, and inform nationwide conversations on government and the law. We have a very distinguished panel of speakers today on the important and timely topic of the powers of the governor in times of emergency. The moderator of today's program is Professor Leonard M. Cutler. Professor Cutler is the current chair of the Political Science Department at Siena College. He also directs the Center for the Study of Government and Politics and serves on the Government Law Center Advisory Board. For more than 20 years, he served as the director of the Intergovernmental Affairs for the New York State Senate. I will now turn the program over to Professor Cutler, who will introduce our panelists. Thank you very much, Judge Stein. I want to extend a very warm welcome to all of our attendees and particularly to our panelists. I'm going to introduce them in the order of their presentation. Our first panelist will be Robert F. Williams, former director of the Center for State Constitutional Studies and distinguished law professor emeritus at Rutgers Law School. He will be followed by Peter Kiernan, former counsel to Governor David Patterson and currently chair of the New York Law Revision Commission and senior counsel at Venable LLP. And uh, Mylynn uh, Dennerstein, former counsel to Governor Andrew Cuomo, and currently partner and co-chair 
of the public practice group, Gibson, Don, and Crutcher, LLP. Each of our presenters will speak for five to 10 minutes. We will start then with uh, Professor Williams, who will provide us with a general overview of the relationship between governors and legislatures, focusing on separation of powers, and where governors derive their authority to declare emergencies and enact emergency powers. Professor Williams. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Dr. Cutler, and thanks to those attending. Uh, I'm very pleased to uh, be here. And I want to, as Dr. Cutler said, I just want to give a basic background. When I talk to legislatively oriented audiences, I always like to say at the founding of our country, the legislatures were in an extremely dominant position. And most legislators and legislative staffers say, well, what's wrong with that, Bob? I mean, that's very appealing to legislators. But in this ensuing couple of centuries, there's been a, almost an uninterrupted rebalancing of uh, authority between governors and, uh, and, and legislatures. Uh, but still, it's quite clear that uh, American governors don't have so-called prerogative powers or lawmaking powers inherently because they're governors. So let me just tell you what the New York Court of Appeals has said, at least in the context of, of executive orders. The crux of the case is the principle that the governor has only those powers delegated to him or her, uh, I think the court would now say, uh, by the constitution and the statutes. So essentially what's involved here is state constitutional uh, law and statutory law and their interaction. So uh, New York has actually a pretty strong emergency government clause in your constitution, article three, section 25, which comes from the cold war toward the end of the cold war era, uh, where most state constitutions authorize the governor to uh, exercise emergency powers in the event of an enemy attack. This was a proposed model provision from the Eisenhower administration. But New York's clause goes on to say uh, others, other kinds of natural disasters, very important because most states are way behind on the actual constitutional powers of the governor with respect to emergencies. So I congratulate uh, New York on that. And so when we look at constitutional powers, of course, in the states, we know that there can be either expressed powers or implied powers. And this clause in your constitution uh, can provide both. I don't actually know how, we may hear from our uh, next two panelists, how much the governor actually relied, actually relied on this constitutional grant of authority uh, for emergencies uh, under those provisions. But all states have statutory authority to governors for emergencies. This creates a strong legislative executive partnership, um, but it also implicates the state's constitutional law because we've got questions about uh, uh, particularly the, the, ex the extent 
of delegations of, of authority by the legislature to uh, governors. But I want to highlight two or three additional important points. Um, it surprises many people to hear federal constitutional separation of powers doctrine, particularly concerning the delegation of legislative authority, is not binding on the states. It's never been incorporated to apply to the states the way the rights guarantees are. Uh, and actually, this could be important, I think, because one of the leading New York cases about um, delegation of authority uh, uh, to governors uh, does rely significantly on federal uh, separation of powers doctrine, which if it's persuasive, fine, but it's in no way binding on states interpreting their own separation of powers doctrines. Uh, so courts really shouldn't rely in any extensive way on what the federal separation of powers doctrines uh, require because the structure of the federal government is so different in many ways from the structure of state uh, con constitutional government. Um, I think legislators should look to other states when drafting statutes on emergency powers for governors. And I think governors should look to other states to see how they have interpreted such statutes. But courts should be very careful in looking to other states when, when applying separation of powers doctrine, because not only are states quite different from the makeup of the federal government, they're quite different from each other. Uh, so what's really required if these things get to state court is a state-specific separation of powers uh, doctrine for that state. Um, is that my time? I didn't no. hear that. I think no, I got no, no. Two you, more. You Go so back to the delegation of powers question. Again, for the legislature in the first instance, as it drafts laws delegating powers to the governor uh, in emergency situations, uh, scholars have categorized New York's judicial approach to, to uh, the non-delegation doctrine as a strict doctrine. So the legislature might wanna keep that in mind and pay per close attention to the cases from the court. And remember, I mentioned, one might argue that re reference to federal constitutional doctrine, it, here's the case, Borelli against uh, Axelrod, it's in 517 Northeastern 2nd, 1350 in 1987, New York Court of Appeals, uh, might be a mis misplaced reliance on federal doctrine. Finally, uh, for this introductory, uh, discussion. Uh, there's a question about legislative veto, the, the, the extent to which the legislature can overturn executive actions, either rulemaking or other actions that have the force of law by a concurrent resolution, not a formal new law. And I've noticed in the new New York statute, dealing with the uh, 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 governor's emergency powers, 
part of this give and take between the legislature and the governor, there is a section that purports to authorize the legislature to overturn a gubernatorial declaration of emergency by concurrent resolution. I haven't been able to find anything in the New York Constitution that authorizes that. And it was the subject of a Pennsylvania case uh, ruling against the legislature when it tried to uh, utilize such, such authority without passing a new formal law. So let me stop there with this sort of brief context that I think is important for actors in all three branches of government, the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Williams. <clears throat> uh, let's now turn to uh, Peter Kiernan, uh, <clears throat> who will discuss the practical implications and political dimensions of New York's governor in times of emergency, especially when he served during Governor Patterson's time in office. Uh, he will focus on the financial crisis uh, during the 2008 recession and contrast New York's fiscal crisis. Uh, the legislature gave extraordinary power back in the period of 1975 to 1980. Um, Peter, by all means, please. Uh, thank you, Lynn, and uh, thank you, and welcome to all. I, uh, I have direct experience with uh, two uh, emergency circumstances. Um, <clears throat> one, when I was counsel to Governor Patterson, and second, when I was an assistant to the mayor of New York City and then uh, counsel to the Senate minority. Uh, David Patterson was formally sworn in as governor on March 17th. 2008, that was a Monday, it was St. Patrick's Day, but he was never to enjoy the luck of the Irish. Um, Governor Spitzer had formally resigned on Friday, March 15th, and in, in between the weekend hiatus of those two remarkable events, Bear Stearns lost 90% of its value and astonishing speed and had to be rescued by the J.P. Morgan Chase. Not long after the governor's inauguration, um, Merrill Lynch had to be rescued by the Bank of America. Then uh, the insurance giant AIG became wobbly and needed to extraordinary New York State regulatory relief and $80 billion of cash availability from President Bush. No one knew what catastrophe would happen if if, Bear, if uh, AIG was not able to meet its obligation to all the entities and persons and businesses, school districts that it insured in New York State. But then Lehman Brothers was unable to be rescued. And we were in the, uh, the grip of the Great Recession. The revenues of New York State were collapsing particularly those of the financial services industry, which is the largest generator of revenues to New York State. But income tax was going through the floor, sales tax revenues were following. When, uh, when the governor was, the day he was inaugurated, he was told that New York State had a $4 billion deficit in that current fiscal year. Governor Spitzer had refused to say that, Governor Patterson did. 
But that soon became a $10 billion deficit. And by October, it was a $21 billion deficit and it was rising. The, uh, the state was unable to meet all of its obligations as they relentlessly were coming due. Um, <clears throat> after the dues of October, the governor called a special session of the legislature to ask the legislature for some extraordinary powers. And I remember in early November watching the governor and the Senate Majority Leader, who then was a Republican, and the speaker played three-dimensional chess, uh, but the guts of which was they actually refused to, the legislature refused to convene in special session, and they gave the governor no relief. Now, either the legislature was in denial or it was unable to grasp the gravity of the situation, or they were exploiting its uh, the political value of it. I remember the chair of the Senate of the uh, Assembly Ways and Means Committee saying to me, "Well, we're going to have a bad budget this year, but we'll get it all back next year," which was just head in the sand because the situation was getting worse, not better. Um, but the state, uh, the governor, then was sort of left defenseless and on his own. We tried and he tried uh, several measures. He tried to uh, delay making payments, tried reallocating certain um, appropriations, tried impounding appropriations. And every time he did anything like that, the state was immediately sued. And the governor's only defense was I can't spend what I don't have. And the courts never bought that defense. <clears throat> so, uh, and there had been a line of cases uh, in the Second Circuit, really brought about by Buffalo's fiscal distress in the early 80s. One case in particular, the Board of Education tried to stop the effective date of a collective bargaining agreement. And the Second Circuit ruled that the government couldn't do that because government has the power to levy taxes and therefore it has a remedy. And basically the second circuit was saying there is no such thing as a financial emergency. Um, as time went on, um, well, I remember one case in particular when um, the state had to make the annual school aid payment. It couldn't, didn't have the money and it didn't make the payment. And despite being forewarned, the all the teachers unions and school districts sued the state the next day. That was their contribution to the solution. And uh, the case went to the, in the third department, went to a judge in Albany. Thank God was a former counsel to the governor. And that judge in an act of judicial courage and wisdom put the slows on the case stop the motion practice until the state could accrete the revenues and was able to make the payment and and moot the moot the uh, case you know in the end governor patterson cut 42 billion dollars worth of spending as he said many times i unified the state everybody hated me um, in his final budget he uh vetoed more than six thousand five hundred spending bills 
The other episode I would like to discuss briefly is the New York City fiscal crisis, which began in 1975. Um, as many of you know, I mean, a lot of you were in short pants and are not even born, but um, as many of you know, New York City had become addicted to debt and then abruptly the capital markets, the debt markets shut to New York. Um, New York was, uh, no, no bank would underwrite New York debt. No investor would buy it. So the state, I mean, the city, excuse me, quickly became insolvent. And on two occasions came within hours of filing a uh, petition of bankruptcy, chapter nine of the US Bankruptcy Code. The uh, state legislature had enacted a series of desperate measures, all intended to give the city borrowing power. They were all challenged and almost all of them were found to be unconstitutional. Many, many people remember the Municipal Assistance Corporation, Big Mac, as it was called. That did survive challenge, mm -hmm. but it didn't really work. Mac, um, the, under Mac, the state took over the uh, New York City stock transfer tax and the New York City, city sales tax, and those revenues were supposed to back bonds issued by Mac. But people basically didn't buy Mac bonds other than speculators, and the interest rate was 12.5%. So the state finally passed what it called the Financial Emergency Act and created the Emergency Financial Control Board. The board had tremendous power. It declared a wage freeze, it declared a hiring freeze. It required the city to have a balanced budget in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles in four years with quarterly modifications, all to be approved by the control board. Control board fundamentally subsumed the fiscal sovereignty of New York City. Now, the governor had four of seven appointees to the control board, including himself. So he was in control, but the other members were, other members were the state controller, the city controller, and the mayor of New York City. Each of those had their own political constituencies and their own political imperatives, and each of them was a potential candidate for government. So the legislature gave the governor power, but he gave him at the same time, uh, fiscal handcuffs or political handcuffs. So the governor had to navigate all of these other political rivals in order to bring cohesion to the uh, control board's actions, which were onerous vis-a-vis -vis the city. The legislature had, in its finding, had said a, a state of financial emergency continues to exist in New York City, but it never declared an emergency, never gave Governor Kerry the power to write executive orders to address the problem. Fortunately, Hugh Kerry was a brilliant politician and was able to uh, get unanimity on every significant control board action. He also had persuaded the Ford administration to provide the, or to promulgate the Seasonal Loan Act, which gave New York City a $2.3 billion line of credit to address its cash flow needs. 
And ultimately, he persuaded the president, President Carter, to guarantee New York City bonds. That happened in 1980, and that effectively ended the New York City fiscal crisis. But the takeaways from what I'm uh, saying is, are two. The first is that the governor's power in an emergency is really not very great. Uh, perhaps in a natural, uh, in a war like 9-11 when George Pataki had a lot of executive power, uh, but also a great deal of goodwill because it was had been an invasion. No one knew there would be subsequent uh, terrorist events. Um, so there's a rally around the flag effect. But fundamentally, the governor uh, does not have a great deal of power, and it depends on what the legislature is willing to give the governor. The second takeaway is that all of these examples of emergency are infused with political considerations, political uh, motivations and political intrigue. You know, by its classic definition, politics is the struggle for power. And you see that power exhibited in emergencies where the legislature gives power to the governor, but then tries to take it back on occasion. And the pendulum swings back and forth. And a lot depends on uh, how astute the governor may be uh, politically. So um, we're going to hear uh, subsequently, I'm sure, that how the governor's power to, in an emergency can be abused. Uh, too much power can be accreted, you know, but it's it's pragmatic. The legislature can declare an emergency, but the legislature can't deal on a day-to-day -day basis with emergency circumstances. So thanks for everyone's attention. Thank you, Peter. Uh, our next presenter, uh, Mylin uh, Dennerstein, uh, will discuss the practical implications and considerations during Governor Andrew Cuomo's tenure in office, including uh, the role of the statutory authority of uh, the governor, uh, state versus local collaboration, as well as conflict, uh, the crisis that we faced, uh, the pandemic, COVID-19, and the importance of the federal government as it relates to the states, especially with respect to federal funding, and last but not least, uh, Mylin will focus on the tensions that existed with the state legislature. Mylin? Sure. Um, great to be here. Uh, thank you for that lovely introduction. And thank you to my fellow panelists for uh, laying lots of the groundwork. Um, so I think so far, if I could just recap, um, and I, I won't harp on these points, um, there's state constitutions, which I think, I don't even know that I knew that growing up, that New York had a constitution. I'm a New Yorker. Um, it might've taken me some time to go to law school to understand that states have constitutions. We're all so focused on the federal constitution, but in fact, each state has its own constitution and its own government. And I think what um, the panelists so far have really highlighted is how important the role of the state is. And in fact, even with respect to the federal government, the state distributes much of the funding and administers many things. So the, the state is actually the local uh, authority in many ways um, for its citizenry. So 
Um, and of course, there's politics. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is there's no team in politics. Um, it's not a team sport. Um, and um, I think that's also can be deceptive if you're not working in government and or working at a certain uh, in certain positions, because sometimes I think we assume that there are parties and therefore each side has a, a platform and they are more of teams. In fact, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think it is not a team sport. Um, and so that makes it ripe with conflict for all sorts of reasons. The other thing, before I get into what I wanna talk about, I think it's really important to think about is the different roles that our government plays. So the executive obviously has an obligation to lead. It runs a bunch of agencies. Um, it has affirmative responsibilities. It has to pay people every two weeks, all the people who work here. Um, very important responsibilities. Um, the legislature has the uh, a, a different type of responsibility, equally important, but they pass laws. Um, and so you can imagine how there can be a lot of conflict between the person who wants to make sure that the school lunches are delivered um, and a person who maybe wants to increase funding for school lunches um, and pass legislation to that effect. So then add on top of that, which I'm about to talk about, and I'm actually not gonna talk about when I was counsel to the governor, I was lucky enough to follow Peter. So before COVID um, and left before COVID. And I also think I was lucky in that way. Um, but I thought it was an, it's an excellent example of a, a disaster um, and how this can all play out. So focusing on COVID, um, in New York State, as you've heard, there is a, 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 an executive law, 29A, that provides the governor with the ability, which I think is so fascinating, to suspend laws for 30 days. Um, now, insider tip. So I used to think, well, oh, you can only suspend it for 30 days. No, you just renew the executive order every 30 days. So you can actually suspend the law for a significant period of time. Um, that is broad power given to the governor. Um, um, and I agree with Peter, the governor's uh, uh, ability to do a lot of things is limited but I find the ability to suspend laws quite fascinating. Um, I didn't even know it existed, that you could just, one person, the person we elect to be governor, can actually decide to suspend a law, assuming there's a disaster. So before COVID, um, and I love that Professor Williams uh, was suggesting, um, and, and Professor Cutler too, that, 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 our, that New York was ahead of time. Um, the law talks about disasters. But typically that was focused on natural disasters. So I don't know if any of you remember when I was in government, when Superstorm Sandy hit um, or a hurricane. And frequently we would rush to make sure there was an emergency order in place. And maybe we had to suspend all sorts of laws. Maybe you had to shut down the streets so you could get emergency personnel through to clean up the debris or, um, or con ed or, or an electric company to make sure that they could get the power back on so people weren't hurt um, in the cleanup phase. And that's typically how I was familiar with the executive orders. But then COVID hit in March of 2020. Um, and 
at that point, I think there was a lot of debate about was COVID a natural disaster? Um, and would a court find, because as Peter, as everybody's pointed out, you know, New Yorkers love to challenge things. I love New York because we all have very strong opinions, but we are not afraid to express them. And that's wonderful, but we will go to court over what we believe. Um, so there was a lot of question about what would be covered. Um, but one thing about Governor Cuomo is he certainly wasn't afraid of taking on big challenges. And for him, it was very clear uh, that COVID was an emergency and fell within the slot. So he did something, he's a masterful um, politician and he negotiated with the legislature to amend the emergency law to grant him broader power for COVID um, and to actually include COVID um, it didn't, I don't think it said COVID, but include a disease, um, um, uh, an epidemic. Um, and that gave him a lot more comfort and authority. And then since most of us, I think all of us lived through COVID, if you were in New York, there was a, an, a, there were probably hundreds of executive orders. There were so many, it was hard to keep up um, suspending laws. And a lot of these laws, again, they have real tangible implications. So for example, you're all, many of you lawyers, the statute of limitations was suspended. Um, so imagine that Governor Cuomo by a stroke of his signature extended the statute of limitations. Now, there are many of us who thought that was a wise thing to do because the courts were in, unable to operate um, at, at, during a certain point of the pandemic. But there were others who felt that that's, that wasn't right, that, that, that like you, there's a reason for statute of limitations. It provides stability. It provides notice. You know that if you don't file your suit within X period of time, you are not able to do so. So that's like a practical example. Uh, another example is the executive order that allowed uh, suspended evictions. Um, now, we can all be very sympathetic to anybody who was unable to pay their rent because they were laid off or their jobs closed or they couldn't work. But at the same time, you also have a whole industry of landlords who rely on that income and it does create other challenges. They all have mortgages on these commercial properties or these huge residential buildings that have to get paid. So how does that all happen? Um, there were, of course, I think everybody's probably read about, there was a uh, immunity granted, essentially by saying you can't sue a nursing home um, during this time period for certain things, by suspending laws. And it's every day in the news to this day about whether or not that power was appropriate or not. And of course, you have, understandably, people who lost loved ones who are very angry and, I, I, and, I'm, and, and suing. Uh, so that's ongoing. So what was interesting about this is although the governor got the legislature to grant him this additional power, which was quite miraculous, um, the legislature decided to take it back. Um, and that's exactly what they did. Um, and about a year later, they passed another law basically saying we don't need this law anymore, or maybe it expired. I actually don't remember which of the two. Um, but then the law reverted. And now we are in a place where the executive law about emergencies 
is the same as it used to be. Um, and I just think that's pretty fascinating that within a period of a year, you had a huge grant of power and a lot of activity. And I think the thinking was the emergency. Um, yeah, I think the legislature said the governor is adequately equipped with his previously existing emergency powers to continue what he needs to do in this circumstance. Um, and the legislature declares that it is time to restore the pre-pandemic balance of power of the governor and the legislature. Um, I think it's fascinating that there was never any concurrent resolutions to, and I'm, I'm curious what my colleagues think about that, to take away some of the power, because I've never in my experience found that to have happened, and I couldn't find any examples of it. Um, but um, I, I thought that was a great check on power that the legislature had the ability to do that, but I couldn't find any examples of it. Um, so I think that hopefully will lead us, and all of these things, were many of them were challenged in court, and largely um, the executive orders were, um, the, were upheld as a proper use of authority. Um, and there's a lot of deference when there's a state law that gives the governor authority or uh, to uphold that law. Um, so I just think it was really an, it's an interesting time to think about how many laws were suspended. And just one more thing, and then I'll stop talking. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I'm looking forward to the discussion. There is even a debate, and this I think gets to some of what Peter's talking about, the dynamics between politicians, about whether who had authority to shut down the schools in New York City. Was it the governor or was it the mayor? The mayor said it was the mayor. The governor said it was the governor. And um, and they, I think they both might have issued orders at some point to do so. Because in New York, which is a home rule state, which complicates this a little bit, Localities like New York City, Buffalo, other places have authority too. Um, and they can also declare emergencies. Um, so I guess it's a good example. My takeaway is New York is made up of a lot of different people, um, a lot of different um, communities, and um, we are not afraid to voice our opinions. Thank you, Mylon. Uh, so, excellent food for thought. You really set the stage here, all three presenters. Uh, let's go back to you, Bob, if we may. Uh, uh, based Len. upon the specific examples uh, that we've uh, seen presented by Mylan and Peter, uh, how does New York's approach to the governor's emergency powers, in your view, compare with other states? Unmute, unmute yourself. Bob, unmute. Thanks. I got it. Thank you. Okay. There was some uh, can I just, I, I need to interrupt for just a moment. Sure. Sorry, I, I need to share the all important uh, CLE code word with the audience. I am sure. uh, sharing my screen, showing the word now. Everyone should be able to see the code word. If you want CLE credit, you're going to need to put this on your form. And for those listening by phone, the word is authority. That's A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y. 
Thank you. Sorry for the interruption. Quite all right. Okay, Bob, back to you. Hey, thanks. Real quick, I wanted to thank Max Sivor for his excellent research helping me with these materials, number one. And number two, to thank my colleague, Kelly Deer, uh, who's we, we included her uh, excellent earlier article uh, on these matters from the Missouri Law Review in the materials. Um, but so I think the example of we've heard about New York because it was one of the real hot spots in the country um, showed us what could be done in emergencies. And I was just reminded uh, a minute ago that one ought to be careful in entrenching these kinds of powers in the state constitution because they're, it's so hard to change. State constitution is much easier to change than the US constitution, but anybody who's ever worked on it knows it's not, knows it's not easy. And of course, statutory law is much more nimble, but I hadn't thought about the point that we just heard that you can use temporary enactments of statutory uh -huh. law, uh, maybe with sunset clauses uh, that would shift the burden on back to the legislature to reenact such a law. That, so, uh, and the point about the negotiations between the governor and the legislature, very important lessons for other states. Um, I think, again, because the, the constitutional clause you have there in New York is so far ahead of most of the states, uh, there's a law review article in the materials about that, actually by one of my former students. Uh, uh, and because the, the New York experience demonstrated for the country the importance of nimble uh, governmental responses in a situation like this where it's different in a way. Nobody knew the details. There was a lot of hindsight here and yes, a lot of politics, but uh, in the longer view, I'm not sure uh, where New York would sit, but let me make one more point from, it was in the chat from my colleague, Kelly Deer, but I'm not modern enough to know how to answer a chat. Uh, <laughs> he pointed out, it's, it's, in, it's in her article, Pennsylvania did amend the constitution to allow concurrent resolutions and various uh -huh. other adjustments to this relationship, but that's entrenched in the constitution. It's not gonna be very nimble. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Peter and Mylin, uh, what lessons do you see us learning from these experiences? You wanna elaborate a bit? Mylin, wanna go ahead? Um, hmm. Well, I think that the ability to suspend a law is um, it's quite important and that a lot of thought, um, even if it's in a short time frame, because when you're making these decisions, you don't have the luxury of time. And I think Peter really illustrated that, right? I mean, there's a financial crisis. You don't, you can't wait a month uh, to figure it out and do all the research that maybe you would like to do. But I still think it's really important to be thoughtful if you are going to suspend a law. 
Because on the flip side, um, my experience is passing a lot takes a lot of work. Uh, you have to get a whole bunch of people to agree uh, that this should become a law. Um, and that means that the legislature thought it was important uh, enough to send to the governor for his or her signature. And so I think there should be a lot of thought into suspending laws and the implications of that. And I like the notion that it was temporary for COVID um, eventually. I think that there's nothing wrong with the legislature saying, we've been at this for a year, we're at a different point, we no longer think it's appropriate to provide you with sort of unlimited authority. Um, and I think those are both good lessons. Um, um, the third is, I think, the point that the presser made too, which is you want to make sure your laws, whatever powers governors have, do cover the unforeseen. Because you also don't want to be in a situation where you're trying to figure out how to deal with a pandemic and you don't have any ability to do so. That's not a good result either. I would add uh, that, and playing off of what Mylon said, that, and what I illustrated a couple of examples, everybody in New York sues. And Governor Kerry in New York City fiscal crisis days tried to uh, impound um, uh, an expenditure uh, in the uh, county of Oneida having to do with the water treatment plant or something of that nature. And the, the case went to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals said you can't impound. But what, what the court was really saying, what other courts have said, is that the legislature cannot give away its power. That appropriations, are inherently legislative acts and allocations of appropriations are legislative acts. And so in an example where there's an effort made to suspend the operation of laws, um, as Patterson tried and as Cuomo did, um, <clears throat> the, um, the legislature, if it knows what it's doing, will be very jealous of its power. Now, mm -hmm. during the 9-11, I, I pointed out that no one knew what was happening during the pandemic. No one really knew what to do from the very top right down to the very bottom. We were really venturing into the unknown. So you had some extraordinary actions. But I think as a general notion, uh, you cannot expect the legislature to give up legislative power. That's not in the nature of political power. Um, and if legislature were to try to do that, people would challenge it. I know on the Emergency Financial Control Board, people said, you carry as the dominant member of the control board was actually doing legislative work, um, you know, the, forbidding New York City to do this, do that. Mm -hmm. And Others pointed out, yes, but he was appointed by the legislature. He was a legislative appointee. So it gets a, it can get a little muddled. But I think we should maybe look at that. The academics should look at that under what circumstances. Is it constitutional for a legislature to give up power? One last very quick point, you know. The, U, the U.S. Constitution, with its enumerated powers, says what the Congress can do, what the president can do, and everything else it can't do. 
The New York State Constitution is exactly the opposite. It says in the Constitution what you can't do, and otherwise, every, everything's fair game. So maybe we should look at the problem from a New York in, in New York from how our Constitution is structured and see if we can't find a remedy. Because it's not what we have in, in an emergency is basically political contest. It's mm -hmm. a good point. Now, let, let me pick up on uh, what Peter just said for all of you. Um, and that is, uh, what do you think should be changed? What could be changed, uh, whether it be statutorily or uh, constitutionally? What do I think, uh, for example? Well, <clears throat> I think, in uh, first of all, the, there should be such a thing as a financial emergency because that can be existential. And I think that should be written right into the Constitution. Mm -hmm. You know, that some courts have said, well, you can't declare a financial emergency because you should have foreseen that that was going to happen. Whereas you can't foresee a hurricane, a superstorm, a superstorm. Sandy could not have been foreseen in its severity. Uh, nobody could have foreseen the worldwide pandemic under COVID. Um, but, you know, we could foresee a, a meteorite five years ahead of the time coming to crash into the earth, <laughs> but you, you can't necessarily declare an emergency five years ahead. So, I mean, I think that, that that's a little bit of an arcane distinction. And we should give a governor power uh, after a declaration of financial emergency, which the legislature should be able to declare. We may have some metrics and they may build a fence around it in terms of period of time. But we've had a couple severe examples of that and uh, it should be addressed. Mm -hmm. Bob? You know, I think it's a great question. Uh, uh, and I, one of the things uh, I've thought uh, over my 40 years of teaching about state constitutions, by the way, on the first day of every class, I made the point that Peter just made. These federal constitutions, quite state constitutions are not just a little version of the federal constitution. They're, they deal with all the reserved powers that the states didn't give away at the founding. But the other thing I, I've thought just listening to this is there are no real limits on what you could put in a state constitution. Back to the point about the the nim the the benefits of a nimble uh, legislative executive relationship, it seems like one could. I, I don't think there's any model for this, but uh, right-thinking people could sort of mesh the the power of the governor as the single representative of everybody in the state with the two branches, two houses of the legislature. Uh, the members of which represent discrete districts in a in a kind of an ongoing and I hate to keep using the word nimble, but it's crucial in a situation like this uh, where they kind of work to, to I'm, I couldn't draft this right now, but it's an idea to to think about in these these contexts, like 9-11, like COVID, uh, maybe like the fiscal emergency. I, I was on the other side of some of those cases. My wife's a 
public employee un union lawyer. So I help with those cases saying, hey, what's your problem? Just raise taxes. And we knew that was uh, difficult politically, but it was actually potentially true. But uh, it, it, this is a, a really interesting possible idea where you'd let the branches check each other in real time mm -hmm. rather than letting everything be decided by the courts. Just occurred to me. So I always learn at these things. Thanks so much. My land? <clears throat> Would you like to add anything? No. <laughs> Mark. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me ask you this. I know we only have a few minutes left. Um, we have 100 plus attendees that are uh, viewing this, listening to us. Uh, what should be the key takeaways that you would like our attendees to, uh, to have from today's discussion? Anybody? It's all politics all the time. That's what I would all say. All politics all the time. Right. And if you don't understand politics, you can't, and not that many people do, but you can't really understand what happens during in an emergency in state government. I think you, you have to pay attention to your state constitution. That's where, you know, as of the... Uh, events in the United States Supreme Court recently, more and more crucial decisions for our citizens are gonna be decided state by state, first by, oftentimes first by legislators, uh, but ultimately often by courts. And again, uh, we heard so many people barely even know there is a state constitution. Uh, but working with state constitutions is not rocket science. It's lawyers, it's, it's hard lawyers work. What's the text say? What's the history of it? Why was it put in the state constitution? What have the courts said about it? What have the professors said about it? There's nothing unique about this work. It's just very few people studied in law school uh, and my experience was once people get out of law school, they come into contact much more often with the state constitution than they do with the United States constitution. Mm -hmm. um, I, one thing I, sorry, I don't want people to come away thinking in the COVID situation, there was no function, there was no relevance for the U.S. constitution, because I guess Governor Cuomo did lose in the United States Supreme Court over closing churches. Yes. Well, that was a federal rights case, not a separation of powers case. Correct. Yes, that's an excellent addition. Um, I would say, picking back on what my colleagues are saying, um, you know, be engaged. This is a time where states are going to assert themselves and have a lot of uh, ability to pass laws that probably matter to you. Um, and um, most people do not know who their state legislators are um, and don't even vote uh, in elections unless it's a presidential. So I think we all have an obligation to be engaged. And I, I really feel that way, especially because as a woman and as a Black person, we didn't even have the right to vote. Uh, so I think that now that we do, um, and many of you do, um, exercise it but you know do more be engaged you you know don't it's 
it's very easy to be critical, um, uh, you know, and I'm very good at it. Um, but it's really important to be engaged and try to be a part of the solution. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> uh, Judge Stein, you want to weigh in at the end of our discussion here? No, I, I dare not, no. <laughs> I think our panelists have handled it uh, perfectly and uh, there, I have nothing to add. <laughs> well, I want to I want to thank our panelists and our attendees for today's session. I'm very grateful to uh, the law school and to our Warren M. Anderson lecture series for this kind of learning experience, and it is critical. Uh, and uh, ending on the note of, of Mylin, yes, uh, very definitely, I encourage my students all the time to become civically engaged and civically aware. And civic participation means you have to exercise first your right to register, then your right to vote. <clears throat> Let me just end by mentioning a paradox where everybody knows about the United States Constitution and the United States Supreme Court, and very few of us have any opportunity to have any influence on those things. The state constitutions, by contrast, are much more close to us in our affairs, but most people don't know much about the state constitution. So it's, a, it's an ongoing American constitutional paradox. It is, and one of the things that the Government Law Center has done and uh, is working to do going forward is to um, publicize explainers on each and every uh, proposed amendment to the state constitution uh, when it uh, before it goes on the ballot. And the Albany Law School publishes an issue of its law review every year about state constitutional law. Very important. Yes, correct. And it does. So thank you all uh, very much. Uh, this was uh, fascinating and, uh, of course, very timely. And thanks to all of our participants. We look forward to seeing you again. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.